Hi, everyone. Welcome to Truth and Beauty. I'm Brian. And I'm Jesse. We're bringing you conversations about the world between an astrophysicist who can't draw and an artist who dropped out of high school. Brian, where are you right now? Think about what you would need to describe where you are on the Earth. What's the minimum amount of information you need? Well, you need latitude and longitude. Yeah, exactly. You just need two numbers. Yeah. Latitude and longitude. But how do you know, how would you find out those numbers right now? Hmm. I mean, right now, I would do it based on where other people are in terms of latitude and longitude. I'd just get everybody else's coordinates. You'd ask other people? Yes, and then I'd probably do something involving the sun that I haven't fully thought through, and I would (laughs) walk to that person while looking at my watch and looking at the sun. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, you'd need to know the direction that you're going. So you'd need, like, a compass, probably. Oh, a compass. See, I forgot compasses exist. (laughs) Okay. Can I start over then? <laughs> I mean, I asked you how you do this now, today. My answer to that would be Google it. <laughs> would That's be, not very Google, creative, what is, is it? my latitude? So I'm, I'm going to Google that. I'm going to find that out. I got two numbers, 41.32 degrees north and 72.94 degrees west. What is that west? Mean? Yeah, so there's got to be a meridian? Yeah, where is that? Where, what's zero Greenwich. longitude? Greenwich. So the reason why Greenwich is the zero point of longitude is because the head astronomer of all of England, he's called the Royal Astronomer, back in the 1700s, he was responsible for figuring out how to measure your longitude from anywhere on the Earth. And he lived in Greenwich. is named Maskeline. And I'd never heard this guy's name until I started looking up how you measure longitude. He's not a famous guy anymore. So you mentioned that in order to get your latitude and longitude, it helps to know somebody else's latitude and longitude, and then you can sort of walk your way from that other person uh, to where you are, right? Yes. Okay. So what if you're on a boat? You take a piece of string, you tie it to your mast, okay? Okay. And then you tie it to a pole on the dock of the place that you're departing. Oh, I like where this is going. Okay. okay. And then you have there... A sort of sundial-type circle that can tell the angle that you've left at. So whether you've gone straight out from there or you've gone at a 45-degree angle from the stick. Okay. Okay? So then you have your measurement of the length of your string because you're spooling it out. And then they have the measurement of the angle that you left at. So then you can calculate, you can triangulate from there where you are. Wait, they have the measurement of the angle? But how do you how do they tell you? You come back. <laughs> and then Wait, you... so you come back and then you knew where you were. Yes. <laughs> but what if you you need to know where you are? Well, so this is a problem. I mean, like I don't feel I feel like I just feel solved like it's the a problem. problem. If you're on a boat and you're trying to plot your way across the ocean, you need to navigate effectively. Otherwise, you're going to end up crashed against some island. Yeah, I can't even imagine that because isn't well, that someone's job to sit up in a little basket on the top of the mast? So there's an infamous example of when this happened. On October 22nd, 1707, Admiral Cloudsley Shovel of the Royal British Navy thought his fleet was entering the English Channel. At 8 p.m. that night, 
The Admiral's ship struck land off the Isles of Scilly, a hundred miles from where they thought they were sailing. Four ships sank, 2,000 sailors died, including the Admiral. Naval disasters like this happened all too often. One of the main challenges in navigating at sea was figuring out the ship's longitude. Your address on Earth consists of two numbers. Latitude tells you how far north or south of the equator you are. Latitude is easy to measure, but longitude is trickier. Longitude tells you how far east or west you are on the globe. A new method to measure longitude would be very valuable. So valuable that there was a bounty put on longitude's head. The British Parliament offered a prize of up to 20,000 pounds, worth millions of dollars today, to the inventor of a method to find longitude at sea. They required an accuracy of 30 miles. 30 miles! Imagine if the GPS in your phone accidentally placed you 30 miles away. To measure longitude, you need to be able to measure time. This was the fundamental problem with determining longitude at sea. John Harrison was 21 when the British Parliament announced the Longitude Prize. Harrison was a clockmaker who thought he could make a clock accurate to within just two minutes over voyages that could last months. It took Harrison 40 years of testing different mechanisms to keep the watch stable in a rolling sea, impervious to corrosion from salt, resistant to extremes in temperature. In 1759, Harrison completed his sea watch and sent it on a test voyage from England to Jamaica. After a journey of 80 days, Harrison's watch had lost just five seconds. While Harrison was working on his clocks, the top astronomer in England was working on a completely different method to measure longitude. The astronomer royal, Neville Maskelyne, was not a clockmaker, so he used the moon as a sort of celestial clock. The moon orbits the Earth once every 27 days, so it moves fast enough in the sky to use its position to tell time. In an hour, the moon will move about half a degree. Maskelyne's job was to tabulate the positions of the moon and several bright stars in a massive book called the Nautical Almanac. Then a sailor could measure the position of the moon from his ship and look up what time it was in England. Then the difference between the local time and the time in England would tell him the ship's longitude. Both methods were tested by Maskelyne in 1763 on a journey from England to Barbados, and both were able to measure longitude to within 30 miles. But Harrison's watch was first and proved more accurate. He got his prize money eventually, and was made a millionaire. The resolution of the longitude problem opened up the seas to safe exploration like never before. So this watch that was invented to measure longitude, this was so important that uh, everybody started taking these on board. They were really expensive for a while, but about 60 years later, when Darwin was on his voyages, you know, you know Darwin? Yes, I know Darwin. Yeah. His ship actually had 22 of these watches aboard. Why? 22 separate Did clocks. Did he take the averages? Yeah. So to get an even more accurate measurement of the time, you take multiple instruments that are all manufactured by like different people in slightly different ways. And then, yeah, you take the average. So I think that the captain of his ship was just super neurotic. So he brought 22 of these clocks on board, which was probably more expensive than the whole ship itself. Well, it worked out. He made his way to the Galapagos, which is relatively tiny in the grand scheme of the ocean, right? Yeah, I mean, it worked out. They didn't sink.
Hey everyone! We started Truth and Beauty as a way to share the stories we've come across in our work. Because this is a brand new podcast, it would mean so much to us if you took a second to rate and review. Yeah, at this point, any feedback would actually make a big difference to us. That's how other people find our show. You can also check us out on Instagram at Truth and Beauty Pod, where we'll be posting visual show notes and behind the scenes photos. Now, here's Brian with a colorful take on maps. Something I've wondered about for a long time is what all the colors on political maps mean. So not the geological ones with the green forests and the white mountains and such. I mean, those classroom maps, like why is one country pink and another one's orange? And who gets to decide that? So this week I decided to do some investigating and it turns out that choosing map colors is as much a mathematical problem as a creative one. There's a whole set of rules. And I'm going to tell you the story of one of them. In 1880, when Percy Haywood was in his first semester at Oxford, he attended a lecture on geometry. The professor was discussing something called the four-color theorem, which he described as, quote, probably true. According to this theorem, a map only needs four colors to ensure that no neighboring regions share a color. So, for example, you wouldn't want the U.S. and Canada to be the same color, let's say pink, because that would imply that they are politically connected in some way. Now, there were plenty of maps at the time that used only four colors, but no one had proved mathematically that you would literally never need an additional color in any circumstance. So think of drawing up your own crazy wild map and figuring out a way you would need another color. So let's get back to this guy, Percy, who was really fascinated by this four color theorem, and he ended up devoting much of his career to it. So he was eccentric, to say the least. So here are just a few fun facts about Percy Haywood. One, he brought a dog with him everywhere, even into lectures. His mustache was so massive that instead of calling him Percy, his friends called him Pussy, as in Pussycat. He regularly wore a patterned cape everywhere he went. So he's constantly confusing everyone around him and he becomes a professor and he's this crazy character who's devoting all his time to this four-color theorem, which might seem like pretty small-scale stuff. But it turns out that he was right to devote so much time to it because there was a flaw in the original calculations. So he decided to set about redoing all the calculations and prove the four-color theorem once and for all. But even though he worked on it throughout his life, he died before the theorem was finally proven in 1976. And here's an interesting side note. This was actually the first major mathematical theorem proven with the aid of a computer. Yeah, I, I, well, I've heard about this, this four-color theory. Yeah, does it come up in your work at all? I mean, the use of color is important in astronomy. So if you see a picture from the Hubble Space Telescope, those colors generally aren't what you would see with your eyes. It's an artist usually with a scientist as well. So do they have specific space artists? Yeah. There That's are, their whole job. Yeah, yeah. there's space artists. I worked at a place with a lot of space artists on staff. One of their jobs was to pick colors to represent different things in space. I mean, you've probably seen a lot of beautiful images. Yeah, but they sort of rub me the wrong way because I can never tell how factual they are. So there's two different theories for how you color things, and maybe this is true with maps too. One way is you could color something the way it actually looks in the real world. And the other way is to color it in a way that makes it more beautiful or brings out some other detail. I've sort of thought of artists as having 
particularly good senses of color or knowledge about color. And I don't know anything about the science of color, right? Like you know more about color than I do, even though you don't have to mix it or use it or think about it aesthetically on a regular basis. But it's part of your work. You deal more with color, right? Yeah, I guess I do deal with color. Because it's light and astronomy is light, right? I mean, especially when you're studying the stars. Yeah, astronomers use colors of light to tell a lot of things about what those objects are, like stars of different colors are different temperatures. And I use radio waves. I still don't understand how that works. Radio waves have color too, because radio waves are just light. I don't understand when people talk about things that are invisible being visible. So did you ever take a hearing test in school? Yeah. And they play the different pitches of mm -hmm. sounds, right? And they kind of gradually get to higher pitches mm -hmm. and lower pitches. And they ask you to tell them when you stop hearing the pitch, right? So the volume is the same, but it's just too high for you to hear, right? But I can't conceptualize how that would happen visually. You can think of it just like sound waves. So just as when you turn the knob on the pitch and you increase the pitch of the sound to higher and higher pitches, higher and higher frequencies, you stop being able to hear that sound. If you did that with light, which you could do, you could turn it from red light to blue light. That's a higher frequency of light called infrared, lower than the red color. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's what that and you, is. Yeah. You've heard of infrared light. It's real light. It's all around us all the time. It's just that the human eye can't see it. But other animals can see these other colors. Maybe that's a good way to think about it yeah. is that just because you as a human can't see ultraviolet or infrared light uh, or radio waves doesn't mean that an animal or a machine like a, a radio telescope or an FM radio can't. Thank you for listening to Truth and Beauty. We are produced at Baobab Studios in downtown New Haven, Connecticut and edited by Brian Schiavone and Jesse Federson. Lonesome people in the whole wide world That's me and the man in the moon